2016 being an election year and the application towards leadership and looking to leaders out in the political realm. But we see also providentially the benefit that a book on leadership will have for us now as we look onward to the next pastor for Redeemer. The question for you as we get ready to move into the text would be this. If you were to take one word to kind of summarize your view of political leadership, of government, what might that be? For many, it might simply be cynicism. And Winston Churchill captured that thought of cynicism when he said, democracy is the worst form of political government, except all the others that have been tried. Just emphasizing that cynical nature that we tend to have for government and political leaders. And in this book, in 1 Samuel, we're in a phase here where they didn't have a straight political leader, a king that's yet to come, a number of chapters down the road, but their political leaders, their spiritual leaders, were essentially one and the same. Their prophets, their priests, their judges, essentially one and the same as far as who was a political leader and who was a spiritual leader. And so, as we look at, the, look at this passage, we're going to see cause for a good bit of cynicism. But fortunately, we'll also see cause for hope as well. So if you would rise with me, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. I'm only going to read a portion of that, since it's a lengthy passage, but we will walk through it in the context of the sermon. So beginning in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Jump down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. You may be seated. 
Let, let me address the potential elephant in the room just very quickly. This passage is not trying to insinuate that the reason Dean is leaving is he's like one of these priests and there was a big scandal and that's why he's going. If you got that out of this, you connected the wrong dots to form the wrong figure. That's, that's not huh, where we're going here this morning. But in God's sovereignty, this is the passage for this morning. This is the text. And we're going to reap benefit from seeing what God has uh, uh, prescribes for a godly leader versus ones who would not be so. And when we look at Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we read about multiple times there, we end up feeling cynical. And at face value, that's bad. You know, feel cynical about it. But when you think of why we feel cynicism, it's because we also know that things are supposed to be better. We're actually supposed to think that our leaders can do well and do good things. God wants us to expect that of our leaders. Unfortunately, Samuel, in the context of this passage, is going to show us that to be the case, that things can be as they're supposed to be. And we're going to get that in the passage through several quick, basically little staccato statements about Samuel in comparison to more elaborative statements about Eli's sons. And in your worship bulletin, you've got a short outline there. And the first part of it is just a little comparison chart. If you want to throw down notes about comparing Samuel, his sons, and Eli. And as we look through the text in verse 11, in verse 11, our passage starts with Samuel. And we see that Samuel, as a leader, is a giver. The first thing, Samuel's a giver. He was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. He gives of his time. He gives of his service faithfully to the Lord. He's not about making a lot of noise about himself and calling attention to himself. Forgive the analogy, but if he were a pro athlete, if he were a panther, he wouldn't be out there doing a super celebration at the end of scoring a touchdown. He doesn't do that after he's given a sacrifice. So, all right, sorry if you're a big Cam Newton fan and all, I am too, but Samuel wouldn't have done that. So, just saying. And we, we might think ourselves, all right, I don't have this, um, my gifts, my talents, they seem minuscule to others with respect to what I can do for the kingdom. Well, you know, that's not such a bad thing because Samuel's shown us that the quiet life, not calling attention to oneself, can be a good thing. I think years back, a friend of mine, uh, his name was Scott, he was, a, he was a phenomenal baseball player and had a powerful, powerful testimony. And in his testimony, he went through his great baseball career. He went through talking about the drugs he was on, the rebellious lifestyle, the broken relationships, and then the radical change that Christ made in his life. And would sit there and think, well, wait, my, my testimony isn't anything like that. Am I nothing? Am I worth anything to the Lord? Until Scott got to the point in his testimony when he said, yeah, but I wish I didn't have to go through hell to get to heaven. And the best testimony he'd ever heard was of a six-year-old girl who said, 
Jesus saved me when I was six. She was later in life, but the girl said, Jesus saved me when I was six years old, and he's never let go of me since. A quiet, faithful testimony of God's work in her life. And Samuel's doing this quiet, giving service in the presence of Eli. And we're going to see that Eli might not have been the best leader, but Samuel is submissive and follows under Eli. Michael Hyatt, those of you in the uh, business world may know him, many bestsellers in the realm of speaking of leadership. And he points out, if you want to be a good leader, you need to first be a good follower. First be a good follower. Samuel prepared himself to be a good leader by being a submissive and uh, good follower of Eli. Hophni and Phinehas, on the other hand, are the opposites. They are not givers, they are takers, with a capital T. How would you like to have the main thing said about you, as we see in verse 12, they were worthless. They were worthless. Verse 12 tells us that they were worthless men, and literally, in the Hebrew, it's that they were sons of Belial. Why do I mention that? The term matters because if we go back in chapter 1, if you remember when Eli comes to confront Hannah, Hannah is praying to God, and Eli comes and says, what are you, drunk? And she says, no, do not consider me to be a daughter of Belial, meaning wickedness, rebellion, prince of evil, the devil. She was saying, I'm not that. But Eli's own sons were. And our author wants to see that connection there, that Eli is failing in his ability to discern rightly. So the priests themselves, his sons, as we see here in this text, they were using their their office for material gain, to take for themselves. So in the... the, um, time there, the priests were, for their wages, absolutely allowed and were supposed to receive part of the sacrifice. That was right for them. But a part of it, in a certain part. In this case, the fat, the first part, was offered to the Lord. And you can see him here, them coming and claiming that for themselves. And what's worse is they wouldn't even do it themselves. They send their servant to do the dirty work on their behalf. So they were stealing, they were lazy, and they wouldn't even do it themselves. They'd send somebody else. So if someone protested, you know, then they were rebuked for protesting that that should go to God first. And so think then, not only of their sin, but of the effect that would have on the worshipers who were there truly to worship God, and then they get this picture of the priesthood of these basically false priests. The worst part is, Not even that they were worthless. It says they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. How could they not know the Lord? How could we not know the Lord? Come to church every week. I do all these things, Lord. I do all these things for you. And then to some, Jesus in the end is saying, depart from me, I never knew you. May that never be said of us, Redeemer. May we truly have a heart for God and know our Lord. Samuel, later in the book, to finish that point on him being a giver through and through, in chapter 12, down the road, he's going to say, I haven't taken 
anything from these people. He's going to be a giver the whole way through. But Hophni and Phinehas, they're going to be takers. They took advantage of the position. They took advantage of the people. And it's a sad thing when a leader does that. In our age of of corrupted leadership, politicians on the political side tend to use the system for their benefit. And church leaders, one after another, is found in a scandal. We're prone to be hardened with that cynicism. But this passage is telling us this should alarm us. We shouldn't just take this at face value. We should be alarmed. This is not the way the leaders should be. And we should be able to expect good things of our leaders. In verses 18 through 21, we get another one of those quick statements about Samuel. He's there ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. So he's faithful in his servant. In a sense, everybody loves him. His mother loves him. His father loves him. Even Eli loves him, and he loves his family. He loves his mama. We know he loves his mama because otherwise, who, who, what uh, man or young, strong boy would be going around wearing that little, little robe his mama makes him? So he's, he's submissive. He loves his mama. He's a good boy. But let's think about this for a minute to go further with that point. His mother is the reason he is there. As you recall, she's the one who made the vow. He didn't. He didn't make the vow. She did. So in our individualistic society, we could easily say, you could say, Mom, that was for you, not for me. I'm going to go live my own life. I'm going to do things my way. But instead, he follows through on what his mother promised for him. Eli sees that faithfulness, says here, blesses her. She has five more children reaping the benefit of his covenant faithfulness. He's reaping benefits for others now. So in verse 21, another statement says, the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew in the presence of the Lord. He's no longer under her watchful eye. He's no longer necessarily under the watchful eye of Eli, but he is continuing to be faithful to the Lord. So for young people, application here, especially college students, you're now, in a sense, out on your own. Many of you raised in a Christian household. Are you now owning the faith for yourselves? Are you owning your faith, whether it was passed on to you by your parents or not? Are you holding faith to what God is calling you to do? Hopefully so, rather than to push it aside like Eli and Hophnius did. Whoa, did I butcher? None of those are right. Hophni and Phinehas. Sorry. Thank you. I'll just start saying them in Hebrew and then we'll all be confused and nobody will know if I'm saying it's right. Okay, forgive me. Another thing we see about Samuel is he's patient. He is a giver and he's patient. He could obviously see these privileges that Hophni and Phinehas were being given. And it could have made sense for him to claim them and say, look, I'm living right. They're not. Give me those privileges. But in the same way he didn't do that, we're going to see one of his uh, ones that he, in a sense, tutors, King David, down the road, didn't do that either. When Saul was leaving an e- living an evil life, David doesn't step in and say, let me be king now. He waits on God's timing. That's what Samuel is doing as well. He's patient. 
He waits on God's timing. A good leader is patient. Thomas Watson says, By faith, a man possesses God. By patience, a man possesses himself. By patience, a man possesses himself. John Chrysostom, early church father, he said this about patience. A patient man is one who, having the resources and opportunity to avenge himself, instead chooses to refrain from the exercise of these. Key link there, patience and self-control. That the one who is patient doesn't seize something at the wrong time. So Samuel is a leader who is patient and he waits upon the Lord for the right timing. Proverbs 10, if we think about the other sons, Proverbs 10 says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Eli's sons are going to essentially prove the inverse of that, where they give grief to their father. See that in verse 22, if we look back as we move to there. Samuel, with his mother's joy, these boys are their father's grief. They were worthless in their sexual sins as well. So one of the saddest things in this is not just what they did to themselves, but again, what they did to others. There were women there who were devoted to serving the Lord. These men take advantage of them, and you can think of the effect that it would have on their faith as well. And it leads to you know, a, a, a rebuke. If somebody's going to wander from the faith, don't take somebody else with you, as these men did. Eli makes an attempt to correct them. He tells them, boys, if you sin against another man, you have recourse there. But if you sin against God, if you sin with a high hand, if you sin with a high hand, as it's saying there, You have no out. You are showing contempt to God. Numbers 15 says, The person who does this thing defiantly, he is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. And Jesus, full of grace, absolutely, he's the one who says, Better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into a sea than to take one of these little ones, down. Do not do that. But Eli's rebuke to them is really pretty weak when we look at it. His rebuke is really pretty weak. And this isn't a passage directly about good and bad parenting, but there's a little mini sermon in there that we could see. Eli, though he cannot prevent them from sinning, We can't do that as parents, prevent completely our children from sinning. He could have taken them out of office. That was his role. They should not have been in that office any longer. And when he simply asks them, why, my sons, we can infer in that, likely by that language, in a sense that he was having a greater love for his boys than for the Lord. And Jesus says, if you will not love me more... Mother, brother, father, son, if you don't love me more, you can't be my disciple. So Jesus is calling us to the greatest love, the greatest benefit for us, is to love him more than anything here. So two common sins in ministry that we see from these boys. They use it for their personal benefit, 
and they use it for sexual gain. Bigger, broader topic there on the sexual gain is really they used it by taking advantage of others. Can leaders do that? Yes. Absolutely, they should not. In verse 25, look at the second half of that verse. We come to one of those where it'd be nice to say, ooh, not uh, too much time to cover that one. Let's move on. One of those God-hearted and Pharaoh's hearts kind of verses. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Now, we're not going to launch into a whole discussion of predestination and so forth, but we can see this clearly in this text right there. There's the marrying together, the putting together of not two opposites, but two tensions. Two tensions. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Both there, absolutely, in Scripture and in this passage. God was sovereign over this situation, and He is not the author of evil, and they are completely responsible for their sin. And we are not to be the critic or the curious. We are to receive this. We are to be humble and have what we'll call a godly fear. A godly fear. Can God turn you over to your sin if you go far enough down that road? Yes, God is a God of grace. And you forgive 70 times 7. But if somebody is willfully unrepentant, continues down that road, Romans 1 says God will turn them over to it. And do you, want to be no, do you want to be one of them? No, and I don't either. And so sometimes the godly fear that this is pointing us to is a good thing. So the application from the first half of this passage is this. Our cynicism with leaders should be reconsidered. Granted, yes, there's corruption in high places. There's also corruption amongst the low places, the lowly people. We, the lowly, we have corruption as well. Do we know the Lord? Are we givers or takers? And then practically, the question would just be this. We see how Eli, I mean, uh, yeah, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, they're t- pushing people away from the Lord by the way that they uh, fill their roles. When is the last time that you've pointed somebody to the Lord by what you've said, not said, done? And when's the last time you've pointed somebody away from the Lord? And so I can catch myself on that very often uh, where I can have an effect of pointing somebody away from the Lord and may God grant us repentance in that. Eli's solution fails. He calls his boys, tells them to change. They don't change. God steps in and provides an answer to that. And we see that in verse 27 and following. So the second part of this And this will actually go faster, don't worry. But the second part of this passage is looking at this. Basically, a covenantal relationship where there are three things. God initiates a relationship, we respond, and then God responds, if you will, to our response with blessing or discipline, punishment. In verse 27 and 28, what this messenger, this a person who comes to Eli is pointing out as he says, Eli, you're a descendant of Aaron. You were given grace upon grace. You're a descendant of the priesthood, and because of that grace, you've been given great, great responsibility. 
And he even mentions there the ephod. You've got this ephod. Inside of that are the two stones. Written on those two stones are all the tribes of Israel, their names. You're given great responsibility to go in and represent the 12 tribes in prayer on behalf of the people. Look at this blessing you've been given, Eli. Then the response. What had the house of Eli done in response? God knows They probably thought that God wasn't seeing what was going on there. But back in chapter 2, and this is again where in 1 Samuel, there's so many great connections that the author gives us. But in chapter 2, verse 3, there was this praise that Hannah gave that was basically prophetic, where she said, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In a sense, every action, Eli and your sons, God has seen that. God will hold you accountable for that. Just like the simple children's catechism question, can you see God? No, but he can see me. So our little young ones can tell us that, and it's a great truth that we see here in Scripture, that God knew what was going on. And it says here that Eli scorned. If you see that word there, the the messenger is pointing out to him, you scorned. And that you includes you, Eli. Eli and your sons have scorned the Lord. And that word is the same one for an animal kicking, like a horse trying to kick, trying to knock the rider off. That's what Eli and his sons have been doing. They've been given blessing. They've been given responsibility, commands, and they're trying to kick against it, saying, no, we'll do things our way. God had blessed them. They, in response, were covenant breakers. So thirdly, God responds. What will God do in response to Eli and his sons? God always gets the last word. God always gets the last word. In verse 30, let's read that for a minute. What does verse 30 says? Key verse. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares... Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So God fixes this situation. He takes away from the line of Eli, many years later, Solomon's king, and you'll see reference to Solomon replaces a priest named Abiathar with another priest named Zadok. Big deal. That was fulfilling this. He moved the line from one to another. That was fulfilled there. And also at the end of this chapter, you also see that now the descendants of Eli essentially become beggars, where they were stealing, where they were taking from others, then they become beggars, and they reap punishment for this. But now, here's a bit of a challenge that you may have caught. God promised. Then he took away. Does that make God a liar? No, we know that can't be the case. God's a God of truth. He never lies. But implicit in this is that this is a conditional promise. There are promises in Scripture that are are eternal, and we can read them and understand that. We see that this was a conditional promise. Do we use those ourselves? Yes, Some of the things that we say are implicit ourselves. If you were to tell your child, tonight we're going to go out for ice cream in a movie, then later in the day that child 
hasn't done their homework, their room is a disaster, and they've been fighting with each one of their siblings and being ill towards you as well, are you still going to just say, well, I'm a man of my word, I'm going to take you no matter what, even though you're going to be cussing me the whole time? No. You step in and say, that was implicitly conditional on your behavior. It would not be good for me to take you. You must be disciplined for it. And this was a conditional promise here in Scripture as well that we see to be the case. Conditional promises also happen in the other direction too. God will threaten judgment, promise judgment on someone. They repent. He is a God of mercy in response. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, we see that God says, yes, I'll visit iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but to thousands of generations, I will show mercy. So our God is a God of mercy, moreover. Now, what hope do we have? Is there any hope we come away with in this passage after we see the judgment, after we see the failure of Eli and his sons? Is our cynicism well-founded? Some things will never fade, and some things will never change. It's just the way it is. Bruce Hornsby and the Reigns, right? Yeah, okay. Actually, we see the answer in two places in this text. Two places in this text. In verse 26, in verse 26, says, and we, we skipped over this, but you probably saw it, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. Now, who else does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus, absolutely. And there's another reference to Jesus, basically, in 35 when it says, my anointed, my anointed. So there is absolutely a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, yet to come, that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We see approximate fulfillment in Samuel and how he's going to step into this role. But there's an ultimate fulfillment in this that it points to Christ. So for Redeemer, we long for Christ. That's our ultimate as we long for that. But we have approximate as well that we can hope for and long for while we give thanks for Dean and his pastoral relationship here for the future as well, that there is good to come for us. And I want to just put on, if you will, my pastoral hat, in a sense, as we wrap up here with a final application. We've got different folks here in our congregation, in a sense, maybe different groups we could think of. We've got some who, in a good way, are sorrowful, possibly even grieving, my pastor, Dean, he's leaving. He's ministered to me. He's been good to me. Elizabeth's been good to me. And we say to you, absolutely, you are good to emphasize that. Absolutely. Redeemer, as a church, you have loved your pastor well. And continue to do that. Continue to do that. Pray for them. Give them cards, hugs. Love them well through and through. But... If you're in that group, be patient. Patient. One of the applications from this passage. Be patient with those who are emphasizing a good thing as well, the future for Redeemer. This group of people can be patient with those who are longing for the future of the, whole, of the church. Then there are some 
who are just wondering, you know, I've been at churches before. Pastors come and go. What's the big deal? Why are you giving us all this information, all these FAQs, informational emails? It's overload. Ease up. Okay? Well, you can be sensitive too. Your leadership is doing a good job trying to give you all the information that would be helpful for you. So if you're in that group, be patient with your leadership. Thirdly, you might find yourself kind of in the group where you're saying, I'm excited about the future. I'm ready to find out who that new pastor will be months down the road. Get that search committee together. Find the next John Piper, Billy Graham, Kevin DeYoung, Jesus, all wrapped into one, just like this passage says. Let's go. All right. Hold the horse. Hold the train. That train's going to get going. Don't worry. But it's not. You've got to step into it. You folks can be patient with those who are saying, wait, wait. We're still finishing well. We're still loving Dean well. We're still sitting under his pastoral leadership for another week, and it's good. See the different groups? We get to be patient with each other. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, said that there were three indispensable requirements for a missionary. Patience, patience, and patience. So, Redeemer, what do we do in the, main t- in the meantime? We're going to be patient. We're going to wait. We're going to serve. We're going to love. We're going to do what this church has done well for years and years and continue in that and keep on keeping on. Let us pray. Lord, you are good in so many ways. You are good to your people because they are your people and because you promise to take care of them. You never leave them nor forsake them. And you promised us that, and we trust that, and we walk in that. But we also know that we're in a hard season. And all the more, Lord, your church will look to you, will be faithful to you, because you are faithful to us. And for that, we thank you. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.